Okay, here we are on July 9th, 2015 at the Science Fiction Club meeting and we are talking this month about The Moat in God's Eye by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, the first of what turned out to be a great many classics by that team and this is certainly one of them so uh, we'll go around and see what people thought of it mm-hmm. and uh, we'll just go around and see what people thought and then we'll uh, we'll come back I guess I'll start off <laughs> I thought thought all in all it was quite good uh, I did find some I guess I'll start with the negative stuff first I found that his um, his depiction of the of the accents of these people like that the, the Russian admiral and throwing in da and yet well I guess he did da more than yet to me, that was a little contrived. And then these people from, I forget what the name of the planet is, where they still spoke Scottish, was just a strong Scottish brawl. And then they had the engineer making you think of Scotty from from the Star Trek series. To me, that seemed a little overdone. But apart from that, then it was also something that I didn't fully understand how the um, those miniatures got loose in the ship and started to fight each other and destroy the ship. I didn't quite understand why they did it, how they did it, but after saying all that, uh, generally I thought it was a very interesting book. I liked the al- the depiction of the aliens, uh, the Modis, and their di- different uh, types of of uh, subspecies that form their their society. I also found it a little strange that in the beginning, when they first met, they didn't they couldn't speak communicate. Then how quickly they learned to speak um, English or English or whatever they called that language at the time. To me, that seemed a little bit uh, strange also. Uh, but apart from that, I thought the book was, you know, rather interesting. Well, I I guess to sum up my feelings about the book is I thought there was a good story lurking in there somewhere amidst the mess that I thought was most of the book. Um, I got confused with the names, and maybe it's just me, but they would use the first name and then the last name, and they did that initially. It took me a while to figure out that Rod and Blaine were the same person, but that could just be me. Um, it was pretty dated in its attitudes towards women, but I think the copyright was 1974, so I guess I can cut them some slack for that. I noticed the language thing, too. Not only did they pick up English, but they were using all kinds of slang and stuff, but I think there was telepathy involved, and it seemed like no one in the crew thought about telepathy, even though one of the Modis a couple times said, I'm not reading your mind, which should have been a clue, but no one seemed to think of that. Um, I did think the aliens were interesting. It's nice to have aliens that aren't always symmetrical, and um, these aliens were definitely different looking, and I thought their um, society was also interesting, but overall, I, I thought... Like I said, I thought there was a good story lurking in here somewhere. I really enjoyed the book. I think I had to read parts of it three or four or five times, just parts of it, after I'd read the whole thing because I needed to figure out the strategies and why the cultures perceived each other in the way they did. And I concluded that the main reason is because the only thing you have to compare another culture with is your own culture. <laughs> so, but I was fascinated. The, I didn't like a lot of the material, the the military stuff. That kind of drove me nuts. And some of them, especially the Russian colonel, whoever he was, drove me crazy. A guy needed to get a life. <laughs> And that was a little bit exaggerated, I think, his personality was. But generally, I thought it was a good book. It was a little bit long. I think they could have cut out some of the conversation here and there. But um, I enjoyed it. I'm glad to have read it. I liked it overall as well. I didn't actually read it. Uh, I read it long ago, and I read it actually several times. Actually, what I used to do is I used to read some of my favorite sections every once in a while because there were certain sections that I really, really enjoyed. Um, for example, um, one of my favorite sections was when they actually take that tour, that kind of bogus tour that they take the ship crew on and they take them down to the museum and they show them different things. And, of course, they, you know, it's carefully staged. Uh, but my all, my, my 
all-time favorite section is the one where the midshipmen get stranded and they go down and they take these lifeboats down to the planet and get stranded and they find a real museum to explore and that's always among my favorite parts of books is when you start exploring alien uh, artifacts and stuff and how to what do you make of them and the, the midshipmen are exploring and then of course they get picked up then we start learning the real Modi secret but to answer Sherry's question there was no telepathy um, these aliens were evolved over thousands as as they used the phrase several times with the brown a thousand cycles of instincts these people were bred evolved selected over thousands of, you know, I don't know, a million years maybe, over thousands of these cycles of collapse and regenesis and collapse, renaissance. The mediators were so, have been all this time evolving to be able to communicate with all, you know, you have alien, you know, you have all these different uh, cultures, you know, growing up in other parts of the planet they have to make peace with these people or else, you know, keep collapsing again. And they have to make peace as best as possible. They have to be able to communicate and they have to be able to understand their fianch clicks, their, their, ob their subjects, so that they can explain their point of view to the other person's fianch click. So this is how I understand it. And I think I understand it pretty well. I'm not positive, of course, but this is how I get it. Uh, so they are not telepathic. They're just really, really good and have evolved to communicate and learn to communicate with all, you know, different aliens and people, their own culture, but now they're using it on the humans. But the humans are, these are actually overall, I think the aliens are, in their different ways, are smarter. I mean, obviously the engineers are smarter at engineering. The mediators are smarter at communicating. Uh, they're extremely empathic. So it looks like telepathy, but it really isn't. Now, what part do the miniatures play in there? They mentioned the miniatures, and they mentioned something like the clockmakers or watchmakers. What, what, I didn't quite grasp their the part. And, and again, why do they go out of control and start killing everyone in the ship and fighting each other at the same time? They overpopulated it. That's basically, there must have been two of them. As I think somebody mentioned at some point later on in the book, there must have been two at least. They came with the brown, remember, on the brown ship that they discovered. And so they eventually just bred and bred. They have to. They can't stop. And they just overpopulated the ship. That reminds me, one of the spookiest, really spooky scenes when they're crossing over from the one ship to the to the admiral's ship and they're crossing over on these ropes and Horace Burry the traitor looks back and he sees they're inside one of the suits and he just go and he's just scared out of his wits because he sees that it's not really a person oh boy that was a scary moment oh my gosh that had to be the scariest and it was scarier for him because he if you remember had I think it was two Modis in one of his oxygen tanks. I think he was going to breed them and trade, <clears throat> like have them for pets. That's what he was going to do until he saw, and this is, I didn't get this until later, but when he saw, um, I hope you guys can hear me, when he saw the Modis in that guy's suit with his head, he threw his Modis uh, basically into the air, and they crashed into each other, and they basically died. But he was going to take his and uh, have them as pets for people. So I think that's what scared him the most. Yeah, they were sneaky little critters. They had to... They wanted to sneak into the ship, and that's how they did it, by, you know, using the human head and then making themselves form into a general shape of a person so they could get past the the door, the you know, whoever was guarding. And, uh, yeah, it was scary. And I also thought it was creepy when they started messing around with all the equipment on the ship and not only making it better, but the speed and the certainty with which they did that. My goodness, if those things get used, used, or if they don't get used, but if they get loose in the 
in the galaxy in general or in the Empire, then the whole place could just fall apart in no time because they were they were smart and they may not have had much intelligence as far as communication went but they sure knew how to engineer stuff and i found it also very interesting as as um evan said the the three midshipmen who went down to the planet just because they ended up crashing there and finding out what was really going on and then they were the ones who actually saw or sensed that the warriors were there and we're going to be the killers, you know, and these three guys knew they weren't going to survive. But that's at least that was when they learned um, what was really happening, and then eventually by the end of the book, um, there were enough clues for the rest of the humans to figure it out. So was the secret the warriors? Was that the secret? And, um, oh, I was going to say, oh, you know what those miniatures first reminded me of? A fairy story that I read a long time ago, and it was something called um, The Shoemaker and the Elves or something like that. And it was about this shoemaker and his wife. And one day they he left a pair of unmade shoes out, and uh, he came back the next morning thinking, Oh, darn, you know, what am I going to do? And he, the shoes were made. Well, then this happened for a while, and... And uh, it kind of reminded, and of course the shoes were the best in the world or whatever, but it kind of reminded me of that. They reminded me of, I kept thinking of Gremlins from the old movie, Gremlins. And I liked the part where the uh, midshipmen were on the um, planet too. Later in the book, I think it's Charlie mentions that Whitbread's Modi betrayed him, but I I didn't catch that, and I didn't want to go back and listen to that part again. Did his Modi betray him? Because that Modi seemed to be one that we heard from a lot in the book. Um, she killed him, and they wouldn't speak to her again because she was the only mediator who had ever killed her own fianchiclet. And it was because she didn't want him to be captured alive, I think. That was the reason. And the secret was that the Modis could not or would not stop breeding. They would just breed throughout the galaxy and they were better. The warriors would have annihilated humans. The the, the engineers were better at building things. They, they their, their technology was more advanced. Once they got out from under their planetary, you know, prison, they would have been able to advance even more before they collapsed. They would have, the humans would have had a chance. That was the real secret. They couldn't allow them to get out. Plus, uh, they had a life cycle that said that for a Modi to live a long time, he had uh, every Modi had to breed, and that was why the population grew so much. And in the second book, which I don't think is anywhere as good as the first one was, the humans figured out a gene- genetic procedure to turn that off so that the Modis didn't have to procreate to live. They could just live if they wanted and they didn't have to have children if they didn't want to and eventually by the end of the second book they all adopted to this genetic procedure which was called the worm for some reason so that succeeded but in the first book they had to procreate to have a culture otherwise they'd all become males and then they'd die real soon after they were born I have a question about the, the, the Horace I forget his last name was he, you know, when they said he was a traitor, was he a traitor in the sense that he was allied with the, with his rebel groups that was helping the rebel groups on, I don't remember, was it on the moon or Mars or whatever? Or was he maybe both and also he was a traitor, you know, like trading and that's why he wanted to, he wanted to get those, those miniatures and if he could have sold them, he would have earned a lot of money. But I was a little confused about that. I don't know if they were, he was using the word in its double meaning or was I'm, misinterpreting it. No, he was a businessman, trader, T-R-A-D-E-R. That was all, as far as I know. I don't know about that, though, Evan, because um, he did something, but it never said what he did. And because at the beginning of the book, they, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Rod had just come from a war or a battle or something, and then he got this ship, and one of the things that he was told is keep 
horse Barry on your ship. Don't let him don't let him go anywhere else. And then he kept horse Barry kept um being afraid because he said, Oh, Stone's gonna rat on me basically and it ended up I think that he did, but they ended up uh doing something so I think he was a traitor and a traitor, if you will. I think he was both. Yeah, I got the impression he was a prisoner on the ship, and this Jason Stone that they mentioned from time to time had something to do with it, but I could never figure out who Jason Stone was or what the story was behind Barry's um, crime, if he committed a crime. But I did get the impression he was a prisoner. I believe that they said that they didn't have any direct evidence, but that he had been financially supporting the rebels that um, Blaine, Rod was trying to, was the one that had managed to keep keep that whole thing from going into an even worse situation than it was. And, and then also um, the guy, the, the traitor, traitor guy, had also paid like 50,000 something or others to these people to assassinate the stone guy, but I don't think that that succeeded. Yeah, I sort of remember that now. I'd forgotten. Um, but uh, I, I, I do have some issues with the book, though. One of the issues is this whole military, ro- this whole royalty thing, this whole Marquis. And, and this is what, this is the year 3000-something? Uh, what? I don't know. Um, is that, that seemed a bit uh, antiquated. I don't get what, uh, how that, you know, that just seemed kind of, anachronistic uh and the technology i mean i know they had a nuclear war at some point you know the code you know that's how the codominium started but you know a lot of the technology still seemed kind of primitive considering you know they had centuries to recover um but at the time when i was reading it back in the late seven early 80s those kinds of things didn't but if i were reading it now for the first time they would have bothered me a lot more that was 40 years ago yeah, the technology bothered me too, and actually, the the cultural stuff in this book, I found just almost offensive. Um, somebody else mentioned that they thought that the the attitudes about sex roles was pretty archaic, and it was. But even for 1974, it was not particularly well done. I thought I've read a lot of science fiction even from the 50s and 60s that were was much more um, even-handed. Um, I also, I thought that the way that he handled the discoveries of the, the way that the Modis were was good, but I, when I tried to read this book a second time just now, I found myself just absolutely not being able to force myself to go on because there are so many clues in it about how the Modis are not what they appear to be. And knowing what the ending was vaguely, I don't remember exact specifics, but knowing the exact, sort of the general outcome of the book, it was really hard to read that and not just want to like beat somebody over the head and say, you stupid idiot, pay attention to what you're looking at here instead of what you believe. Yeah, I think I was reading one of the blurbs in the Bookshare um, database about this book, and I thought I read somewhere where it said that one of the authors, I don't know if it was Purnell or Niven, was more into military stuff and the other one was into space, and the two of them combined and tried to both of their particular expertise um, areas of interest in there. So uh, the military stuff bothered me, too. I'm just not used to that much militaristic stuff. Um, like I said, the Russian colonel or whoever he was, he just drove me nuts. But the whole regimentation of the society, the human society, just didn't seem like it would fit the 30th century or 31st century, whatever it was, especially after falling uh, from one empire into, you know, an area of, of, of 
Middle Ages type stuff and then coming back. It just didn't seem like it. You would have thought they would have learned from their mistakes if you had read the, the beginning of the book with the timeline in there. Um, just didn't seem to fit quite right. I don't think we've heard from David or... Uh, it says Bob O. Yeah, hi, that's me. I'm Bob. Anyway, yeah, I enjoyed the book, and I read it years ago, too. In fact, it's one of the last books I ever read, actually read. And uh, the human characters drove me nuts with that anachronistic um, society they had. But I did enjoy learning how the Modi society was constructed. It was sort of interesting. The thing that got to me was all the dumb praise. I mean, really? I mean, um, again, like you guys have said, we're in the what century and you're still having all these parades? Really? I don't remember the timeline, <laughs> but I think the authors think, and I know I'm double thinking here, but when you, and, and you remember Admiral Kutuzov himself. I mean, there was a lot more conflict in this, even in this re-risen empire. He actually sterilized an entire planet. Uh, that scientist, Horvath, whatever, um, mentions that early on when they pick him to, when they pick the Admiral Kutuzov to lead this fleet, or this two-ship expedition. And um, I think that the authors think that in this environment, you're not, women's feminism is a luxury, maybe it's overstating it slightly, but when you're in a wartime environment, you're going to revert to older norms of, you know, um, we had, you know, in the 18th century or 19th century or something. Uh, that's my thinking, because I just get a sense that this empire is old in, in the sense of being old-fashioned even now. You know, in the 31st century, it feels old. The, the, you know, the whole... You know, the mores and the parades, yeah, parades. Um, and all of that, it just makes it feel like it's from the 19th or 18th century or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how they think that, you know, because there's a lot of conflict in this environment still. And that's how it would be if you had to go backwards, in you know, in terms of women and, you know, men's and women's roles and all that stuff. With this royalty and everything, it's just old. Um, I don't know. I didn't read the book, but about parades, I do know in the 50s and 60s, the Russians, um, communist Russia, did stage a trillion parades um, as part of their brainwashing and their um, trying to establish nationalism and support for communism and um, for public relations. So I do remember in those decades that, that, that the Russians had those parades, and I wonder whether one of the authors was thinking about that when he put all those in there. Yeah, because remember, this conominium is kind of a con... A con what, what am I looking for? Something conglomeration of Soviet and uh, American domination of the empire. So you get these elements from both. Um, and we still have a lot of parades, actually, the holiday parades, not, not these kind that they had in the book. But, um, but that's kind of where that comes from. The, this book was still written when the Soviet Union was going strong, or at least it looked like it was, um, back in the early 70s. And so they just extrapolated this out till, you know, the Americans and the Soviets kind of have this nuclear war, and then they kind of build this codominium afterwards. So you still got these Soviet elements in here. They used to publish this huge, glossy magazine called USSR, and it was just loaded with pictures of military parades and, you know, trotting all these soldiers and all their cannons and their their whatever military vehicles through the streets. Well, the North Koreans still do it, remember? Um, who is it, Kim Jong-il or whoever he was? He loved parades. The guy that died recently, um, he would have parades all the time. And even though that country, people were starving to death, they had to trot all, go around the streets and drag and trolley around all this hardware and military stuff. And they're still in the parades. 
I was wondering, um, early in the book, I got the impression the Motis were the first alien life force that these guys had encountered, but later in the book, somebody's talking about, we've seen this with other alien species we've encountered. And I definitely, I made a note of that because I was surprised to hear that. And again, I'm starting to wonder, you know, maybe I was distracted when I was reading the book that I've missed some stuff like this. But was this, were the Modis the first alien species? Yeah, the Modis were the first aliens for the humans. Uh, but the humans were not the first for the Modis. I think we were the more intelligent for them, or more intelligent than they thought. The uh, Earth, uh, Earthmen had come across some other non-intelligent alien life, like, um, I forget what they call them, or some kind of rat that they'd found on some asteroids, but nothing intelligent, if I have it right. I can't help but wonder, if, and this is me just kind of rewriting the book, if you will, but what if... Rod had um, told the Modis about the miniatures. I wonder what they would have done or what they would have said or if they would have helped or how they would have handled that. That's true because they weren't, they weren't honest from the beginning. You know, they, they told when, they, when, they, when the shipment went down, they, they told Rod and the other people that they had crashed when that wasn't true. So who knows what they would have done. It's hard to tell how, how truthful they were. Well, there was deception on both sides. I think the Modis eventually figured out that the plague that the humans were referring to were the miniatures and the the the, um, the little engineer guys. Um, that was the plague that the humans talked about, but they made it look like the plague was a disease. <laughs> so eventually people figured things out real close to the end of the book. And um, it was it was. It was deception on both sides. And, of course, the humans did figure it out that the the three midshipmen didn't crash and burn. They crashed and went out exploring. Um, I forgot how they figured that out. But they did eventually figure out that you know, the Modis were lying about that, too. Because, remember, at the end, the humans wanted the bodies back. Um, interesting. There was one of the, one of the uh, crewmen, what was his name, who, who was really... Apparently he figured out, and I, I, he was looking at at map videos or you know something in his computer, and I can't remember his name now. And he sort of discovered that I think he was closely analyzing the surface of the planet and looking in, and, and was able to pick up. I don't know if telltale signs of soldier class or or exactly what, but he he, he was the one, and I can't again I can't remember his name offhand now, but he was the one I think that later. Open, you know, open the Pandora's box in a sense, and and realize that the Modis weren't were holding back on a lot of things. I think it was Renner. Yeah, it was Kevin Renner, and he actually was taught. He had pictures of that ship that they had first found back at the beginning of the book, and nobody knew it at the time. But the ship, when it had detected that it had, when it, the ship detected that it had been detected, it ejected the warriors, and. We didn't see that. They didn't see that at first, but he analyzed the images that were taken from... See, I don't remember this real beginning part very well. Um, but he analyzed images that were taken and discovered that he he saw these bodies being ejected from the ship that nobody had noticed before. Because when they discovered the ship, what was there? What is one body on it or none? I can't remember. Um, and that's when... And then when they looked at those pictures, they started seeing these aliens and then they put it together with the painting remember they saw a painting in the museum of the fake museum and they they came up with some blather about the art some artistic nonsense about what the but they were actually had they were warriors in the picture uh, but they said I can't remember what they said but it was kind of nothing but it was um, sounded kind of uh, vaguely artistic but um, and then he started putting it together, you know, uh, why bring a warrior with all the rest? You know, why bring these if they were only, if they weren't real, if they were just painting, you know, why would these bodies be here that look, you know, that was uh, that was the moment when they really start to uh, get suspicious and 
realize that the Modi's weren't telling, were holding back some really important stuff. David, do you have anything to say? Well, I've been enjoying the discussion. Personally, I found the book hard going. It was very long, and I did not relate well to its setting. This sort of condominium culture really lost me. I thought the concept of the book was good. I've tried to read other books by at least one of these authors. I believe The Integral Trees was written by one of them, but it confused me too. Yeah, that's a hard book to get through, although the story in there is pretty good, but it's hard because you have to try to visualize how the trees are in order to figure out how the society works, and it's hard to do that if you've never seen anything in that kind of a configuration before. But, yeah, I read that way back in the days of uh, 1980s analog but then, of course, the book was sort of a, an expansion of it. It occurred to me while I was reading this book, and I'd be interested to see what you guys think. Whenever humans discover a new alien species, it's almost a cliche. You've got people that want to kill them because they're a threat, and you've got people like, um, what was his name, Horwatz or something, who think that the aliens can do no wrong. And even though they're cliches, it's very realistic. You would have people that would be on both extremes like that. And it must be really hard as an author to write these characters without having them come across as cliches and still capture, you know, personalities that you would find in a society that finds aliens. Yeah, and one thing that the authors were cognizant of, and I don't remember the details, but I remember Rod or... or, um, um, the ad, I think it was Rod, who was, or, or one of the uh, ship, the military, trying to explain to Horvath or the senator's daughter, who was also in the same Sandra or whatever her name was, um, um, why he has to think that way. Because if, the, if we think wrong, we're totally dead. If we are paranoid and are wrong, then maybe, you know, uh, maybe we lose something, maybe we don't get along as well, or maybe we... You know, maybe we're overcautious, but if we go the other way too far, we could be finished. One question I had: What was this? Was it the crazy Eddie thing? Am I remembering that? I, I didn't quite understand how that, what concept that was in the book. I think <coughs> um, it was a philosophy more than anything else. That you either do things for the wrong reasons, you do right things for the wrong reasons, or wrong reasons, wrong things for the right reasons. I think that was a, mostly a philosophy of the Modi's, and I don't know why they called it Crazy Eddie, because it, it resulted in if a Modi went, went nuts and went insane, then they really got out of the, the mesh of the culture that they were born into. That's the best I can get with it. Yeah, uh, the, cra- the, the Crazy Eddie drive. It's I got the idea that if it was something that was, you know, because the Modi's were really smart in some ways, but they were really, they had real conceptual limits because, you know, they were all castes, so they weren't real good generalists. The mediators were the closest thing, but even they weren't really fully, you know, able to, you know, to think generally. And if it was outside of their conceptual framework, then it was Crazy Eddie, like the drive that we used. They'd never heard of it before. You know, so they called it the Crazy Eddie Drive. As far as the name goes, I don't know. The only Crazy Eddie I remember was an advertisement for a an appliance store in New York. And they used to advertise, and they used to say, his prices are insane. It was named Crazy Eddie. It was a New York appliance store, and he had huge discounts on stuff. And that was the only Crazy Eddie I ever knew. <laughs> what did you guys think of Rod's Fionn's Click? Um, I, I thought it was weird how she said one sentence and they thought she was crazy, Eddie. <laughs> and you didn't hear from her again. But to me, I don't even remember what she said, but she said something about cycles. And I think she was right, I think. But I can't remember because she was not, she was not in there very long. She was too sympathetic, I think, towards him. And she wanted to tell the truth. I think that's what happened, but I honestly don't remember for sure, but that's my guess, because as soon as you start mentioning the word cycles, you're getting awfully close to the Modi's secret, and that's probably what happened. I just wish I could picture what they look like. Yeah, like we're not really wired to think of asymmetrical 
organisms because most you know our organisms are all symmetrical so it's hard to think about these you know I kind of visualize the right arm and then another arm kind of under it you know but but the hands are I can't really you know visualize because they've got three they got two on the right and one on the left is our and a big one on the left the big one is the real strong one as I recall the ones on the right are more delicate uh, but those warriors, I, I could sort of visualize, believe it or not, I can sort of visualize them more with all their spikes and everything. But the 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 the, the, the um, ambassador and the masters, they were nice and furry. I remember even I don't know if it was Rod who said that he he was tempted to one that felt like petting them because they looked so so almost like a furry animal or something. I had forgotten that. Well, and Sally actually took one in her arms because I think um, oh what happened. It was her, it was her, oh it was the one that was dying because she couldn't get pregnant or something like that. So they did have their appeal <laughs> as, as sort of cute like type things if you, if you put aside their intelligence. But one of the things that I found a little strange is they only lived for 20 years. How were they able to in 20 years to acquire the knowledge and sophistication that they needed to govern you know especially the masters because I guess they were all limited in or, or, or were the masters living longer than than the than the um, communicators? Because see them like they all had a limited lifespan, and you wonder how they were able to acquire so much knowledge in such a short period of time. I think one thing is that they had to grow up really fast. They didn't have long childhoods. I may have to get out of here. Uh, we're we're having storms again. Um, Sherry, I like your your idea. They sound like Gremlins. Yeah, well, I mean, um, that, once again, how they could learn so fast. I mean, think about, we've only been breeding dogs for a few centuries, or I don't know, a thousand, we've been breeding horses for, imagine breeding for a hundred thousand years or more. That's just an inconceivable amount of time. You know, you can do a lot, if, and, and you know, if they, don't, if they don't learn fast enough, well, the penalties are pretty severe, so they are just being selectively, you know, bred you know, not not you know consciously by a master or anything, but their their environment is breeding them, and you know, with these collapses, you know, only the very few survive, and then they go on to the next um, you know um, cycle, and then they few go on to the next cycle. Imagine uh, the the incredible amount of uh, selection that's going on there. Well, it's a, I perhaps. Should we start thinking about a new uh, a book? I don't, instead of naming a book, I would like to find, you know, all of you have read so many books and know so much about, you know, these science fiction books. I would either be interested in hearing, reading a book, again, about alien contact between, you know, um, Earth people and aliens, or going to a planet and exploring a new planet. Those are the two themes that I would find interesting in a book, if anyone could come up with one like that. Well, I have a list of stuff I'm going to be reading again this summer and a bunch of stuff that we've mentioned. The one that popped into my head that I want to reread this summer is Lord Valentine's Castle by Silverberg. It's about 21 hours long, and uh, uh, who is it? Rick Sullivan, is that his name? He narrates it. Last name Sullivan. And it's it's one that has been around for, I think it was published in the 1970s. But most of it, even though there's a plot in it, it does explore this huge, huge, huge planet with six or seven different species and all sorts of incredible. It's almost like a tour of the planet, but there is a plot in the book. Um, so that's what came into my head. But I have some others listed that we mentioned in previous months like neverness and um oh what the three body problem which i haven't even looked at yet and um some other stuff carbide tipped pins and stuff well i've got another peter f hamilton if people want to hear about that it's I, uh, there are pros and cons to that uh we've already done hamilton a couple times which is a con, but the pro is that people seem to generally like him, and he tells a good long story, leaving aside the Night's Dawn trilogy, which, you know, I uh, heard Sherry on that and read some of my own reviews, but, but that was 20, 25 years ago. Uh, his later long books have been all well-received, and 
but on the con side, as I said, there are a lot of authors we haven't done any of, and uh, but he is very good, and uh, he's got a book we haven't read that's new, well, newer, it came out late last fall, uh, but it's got aliens in it, and it's got a, not a planet, but it's got the void, it's, um, it's part of the, it's not the void trilogy, it comes actually set before the void trilogy, but it's got lots of aliens and cool stuff in it, if people want to hear about that. Or we can talk about other authors that we haven't done anything from yet. Like? Uh, so you guys... Like I'm sorry, Evan, who was that author? Was it Peter F. Hamilton? Because I'm always up for reading one of his books. But I also like Silverberg, so I, I'll go with whatever the group wants. Peter F. Hamilton. Is he the one that wrote the... Um, what was that book? The Head, the Counting Heads or something like that? No, he wrote uh, Pandora Star and the Judas Unchained, which we, we did Pandora Star, and I think some people read Judas Unchained, though I don't think the club did, and he wrote Great North Road, which we did last year. So, uh, you know, we've done him a few times, but he's really good. He's reliable, and he's he can keep us occupied for the next five weeks. But uh, Lord Valentine is... Uh, um, does it have good characters? Lissy wants to know. Does Lord Valentine have good characters in it? Oh, if if it's what I think it is, Mary, that's the Majapur, uh, right? Oh, Lord Valentine has great characters. Oh, they're fun. They're so fun. I won't give. Oh my gosh, they're fun. There's like um, Mary said, if it's the one I'm thinking of, which I think it is. If not, she'll tell me. But there are different alien species. There's, it's like she said, it's a tour of the of the planet. There is a plot in the book. With oh, it's fun! It is. It's the first book in the Magipur series of sec- seven books. But you wouldn't know it was the first in the series because it stands on its own. Lord Valentine is pretty much the head of this um, planet's um, society at least for a while. (laughs) And um, basically the plot is that he has been injured so that his memory is missing and he doesn't know who he is. And so he uh, ends up in this this bunch of jugglers who are all different races, not all of the races, but some of them, giants and some of these four-armed characters and stuff, and travels around the planet and eventually figures out who he is. And... The, the royal palace and stuff is on top of this mountain, huge mountain structure, and the natives of the planet have taken over that. Uh, the natives are shapeshifters. They're called metamorphs. And uh, that's all I can tell you. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> but the fun part is, is uh, the tour of the planet. I was thinking because summer is when people travel, and I thought it would be fun to travel to a planet like this. It's just a huge, mongous planet. Um, it's so big that it may not have even been explored yet. It's endless ocean, and there's like two or three continents. And, um, oh, I don't know. It's just it's just such fun. And uh, Rick Sullivan reads it really well. Well, I say let's go for it. Is it in Braille or on... Uh, it's on bar, but is it in uh, Braille or on... Uh, uh... I will check right now. To see if it's on Bookshare, if that's what you meant. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt interrupt you, Evan. I want to know what the Peter Hamilton book is, because, ooh, I like him too. Let me go look for this. Hold on. Uh, the Peter Hamilton one is probably on Bookshare. I don't think it's on Bard, although I could be wrong. The um, Magipore books are probably all on Bookshare. Um, the book number for the Bard one is DB59. Five four five. I think I wrote it down right. I hope I did, but you know you'll be checking that anyway, Evan. And uh, it's it's long. I, it would be a very very long Braille book if it was done by NLS, but Bookshare they pretty much just put Braille books in one big file. But um, I think Bookshare has it. I think they've got most of Silverberg's work. Yeah, uh, the the Hamilton book isn't on Bard. It, Bard isn't even working on it. I just checked today to find out if it was in process, and it still isn't. Uh, it's a PQ book, so we'd have to do the Bookshare version if uh, people want to do it. It looks like Valentine's going to come out 
uh, this month, though. Uh, but it's called the it's called Abyss Beyond Dreams, and it's a uh, it takes place in the void. Um, you know, for those of you who've read the Void trilogy, it's a it's a it's an environment at the heart of the galaxy where um, it it looks like you have magic powers if you you if you're you know you can do things psychically and you can. But it turns out that it's using, it, it looks like magic, but it's using the energy of the stars inside, and it's expanding inexorably outward. And so they lead an expedition into the void, and they encounter these aliens who are pretty vicious, apparently, but they may have the secret to the, the, destru- the destruction of this void uh, to protect the rest of the galaxy, because it's in, you know, it continues to expand and endanger you know, the rest of the outside world. So... And, you know, with Hamilton, there's characters, and there's lots of technology, it's good, you know, it's it's pretty advanced, because it takes place well after the Pandora Star, uh, Judas Unchained, but before the Void trilogy, which uh, is a little bit odd, because, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how they're explaining, because the, uh, some of the stuff that goes on in the Void was revealed in the Void trilogy, so I'm not sure how he does, handles that, but, um, uh, anyway, um, but it looks like we may have to read that one later. But as I said, Bard isn't even working on it, it doesn't seem. But they've done most of his stuff, so I don't know. Maybe they'll get around to it at some point. Okay, here's the deal. Um, there, There is two Lord Valentine's castles. One is by Robert Silverberg, and the other is Robert K. Silverberg. So I don't know if... There are I I didn't look, but I don't know if it's just different quality and the same author, or I don't know. Well, one of them might be PQ or excellent, and the other one, if it's older, it's probably going to be fair or good. And you don't want the fair or good because they're not any good. Are you looking on Bard or Bookshare, Leela? Bookshare. Oh, well, that's probably what happened then. They probably got a book, probably a volunteer version, and they probably got a replacement and they didn't take down the volunteer version. They're not always keeping up with those. Um, and there are sometimes they get more than one book from a, in a different publisher, and they, they, I think they have to keep those. Um, so that's probably what happened. But you can check on the page to see what the quality says. If it says excellent or good or fair, then it's a volunteer or an outsourced version. If it says PQ or publisher quality, then it's direct from the publisher. I should remind you that not everyone in our group is a member of Bookshare. Well, this one's on Bard, though. Uh, Nick Sullivan narrates it, and he's pretty good. I've, I, he read uh, some other stuff that I, I listened to, so he's, he's pretty good. I just renewed my Bookshare membership. I have two Hamilton books downloaded from Bookshare, Misspent Youth and If at First. Neither of those are on Bard, in case you haven't gotten those, Evan. Sherry, I just renewed my Bookshare membership as well. How funny is that? Yeah, I renewed mine in June because mine always runs out in June, so I figured I'd get to them before it ran out. Even though they tell me that I signed up in July of, what, 2002 or something. But I always think of June and Bookshare. It just kind of merges in my head, so I know that sometime in June i got to renew. <laughs> I'm reading a book from Bookshare called Golden Sun, which is science fiction, but... I don't even remember who it's written by. It's sort of weird. A lot of fighting and stuff. I don't know if anyone's seen or know anything about that book or not. That's the sequel to Red Rising. You don't want to read that. Uh, there's The first book is Red Rising. It's a dystopian Martian thing about different classes. And this guy infiltrates the Golds because they're the highest class and he wants to overthrow the ruling class. And it, it is quite violent. And uh, we read it. For our library club, our local library club, and we're going to read the second book here at some point. I, we planning to, uh, but uh, yeah, it was pretty violent. But but Lissy wants to tell you guys something for a second here. Well, a, a couple of things. If anybody is in a crunch, don't forget that Evan and I have tons of credits for our volunteer work, and we're allowed to apply those toward for to pay for anyone's membership. So. We'll always be glad to do that if it would help help you. Um, about the the book, um, The Golden Sun and Red Rising, really whether you like it or not depends on whether you like high action adventure because it, it is pretty bloody and very very full of competition and, and cutthroat and 
um, important characters die and, and people get pretty ruthless. But we found in the library science fiction group that we belong to that there are only a few members, but one of those guys really loves those um, really gory adventure books. And, and so it all depends on your taste. Um, another thing is that I have sad news. Um, Kim Friedman, who has come to some of our meetings, passed away. And we were very surprised and sad because um, she was an enthusiastic reader uh, in many genres, and it was pretty unexpected by us. We knew she'd been in the hospital and rehab for pneumonia and, a, and an infection, but we heard that she felt that she was getting better, and so, so we're really sad. Yeah, we just wanted to mention that because she did a lot of good volunteer work for Bookshare, and we used to talk to her on the phone occasionally, and she would talk about science fiction, and she was a fantasy reader as well, and very well-read and intelligent. Uh, but uh, she was at home and writing messages to the Bookshare list uh, about being in recovery, and then we didn't hear from her for a while, and suddenly we get this message, boom. She was such a perfectionist, and that's <laughs> always a... You know, that's such a good thing for, for readers not to be distracted by mistakes that that are not caught by the proofreader, and Kim certainly caught the mistakes. Yep. Wow, I'm really sad to hear that. I've talked to Kim on the phone a couple times, too, and you're right. She really was incredibly well-read, and she didn't sound like she was that old, either. I was surprised to see that, too. I saw that on... On the list, and I didn't even know she was, I didn't know her too well, but I had, of course, she, I had been to a couple of other book club meetings with her on um, Samnet, and uh, I, you know, she had been, she was just here a couple months ago, and wow, I was shocked to hear that. Well, uh, I guess uh, we're doing, uh, are we doing the Silverberg then? Is that the consensus I'm hearing here? Yeah, I think if, if Mary says it's so enjoyable and entertaining, I would say let's do it. What is, we can go with the Silverberg book, but what is the other one, Evan? I might read that since I've already read the Silverberg one. I might look, you know, skim it. But that is an awesome, that is a great, great book. You guys... I can't wait to discuss it next month. It'll be fun. What is the other one from Peter Hamilton? Something about the abyss, but I can't remember what. The Abyss Beyond Dreams. It's the first of a duology. Uh, that, um, so it's the second one hasn't been published yet. Uh, the Abyss Beyond Dreams, and it's a PQ copy from Bookshare. Okay, uh, I'm going to turn off the recording after I say that our next meeting will be on August 13th. 2015, and we'll be reading Lord Valentine's Castle from Robert Silverberg. First thing we've read by him here, I think. Pretty sure. And uh, that's available on Bookshare and Bard, and I'll put all this in the Newswire tomorrow and get it published. And I'll see you all here in uh, five weeks' time, I hope.